Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, glad you're here. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, parents, if you want to dismiss your kids to um, Aletheia Junior, uh, our teachers and volunteers are over here to my right. You can send them on over, uh, and they will have their lesson and their time this morning, and then you can collect them uh, after we are dismissed from service uh, this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Psalm chapter 8. That is where uh, we are going to be uh, this morning. Um, if you need a Bible and you don't have one, uh, we've got some people around the back. Just raise your hand. We'll give one to you. Uh, we love the Bible here. We believe that's how God is speaking to us. And so if you need a Bible, we will give one to you. It's our free gift to you. Please take it with you. Uh, we would just love for you to have it. Uh, but this past week, as I was reading um, Psalm 8 in preparation for this message this morning, I was, I was struck by kind of a, a couple of, of different things. And as we uh, just heard Lauren read the text to us this morning, maybe you even noticed some of them as well. Uh, but there's a tone and some presuppositions that David carries into uh, this psalm uh, that, that, we, that we're studying this morning. And I, I believe, in, in all honesty, that uh, some of the things that, that David believes and brings into this song that he writes, this poem that he wrote, um, are, are maybe not things that, that we kind of like instinctively or naturally do in the year 2022. And, and what I mean by that is... David, as he thinks about God, as he looks out over creation and, and sees what he describes as the work of God kind of laid out before him, you'll notice that what that elicits in him is one thing. And I would describe it as all of who God is. You know, there's this, this worship that kind of swells up in him, not because he's told himself that he's supposed to respond to God in worship, not because it's a command of God to worship him, which is absolutely true according to the word of God. But the worship that we see David writing about in this psalm is genuine because when he sees God, he's genuinely amazed by him. He's genuinely in awe that as he could stand before a mountain or look out over the sea or stand by the river or stare out over a desert, that when he looks out over creation and he knows the one that set all of that in motion, his only response is to be in awe of his creator. You know, today I imagine the vast majority of people, your neighbor, someone in your family, a coworker, a classmate, a friend, maybe even you yourself, your natural inclination and response to the beauty of the world around us might be a little bit different. You know, I think we live in a time and period where many of the advancements we've made as human beings in the areas of science and technology have led many of us 
to believe we are all that there is. That it's just us. And in that, that creates an attitude and a posture of self-sufficiency that neglects the reality of how small we really are in the grand picture of things. You know, I was even looking at the picture of just our galaxy this past week as I was reading this, because it's just like one of the things that popped to my mind was like, you know, just think about like how big our solar system is and then how small that solar system is, even in the midst of our own galaxy. And when I was looking at the pictures, the, the hilarious thing to me is like there was just light there and there was kind of like a circle and the, the, the teaching that I was looking at just basically said, yeah, we think we're somewhere in here. Now think about that in the scheme of just our galaxy. And the God of the Bible spoke all of that into existence and how small we are by comparison. And yet the natural inclination, I think that, that many of us maybe even unintentionally run to is one of naturalism in approach to the world thinking that we have all the answers and we can do it all. And as I reflect on that, all that, can, that I can kind of conjure up, all that I think about was Paul's words to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn over there with me. I, I want to read this to you because I think, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is, is first and foremost, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me as being a pastor and having been doing uh, ministry specifically in college towns now for about 15 years, um, those cities tend to be centers and hubs of a a high amount of intellectualism and like really, really intelligent people. I tell incoming freshmen at the University of Florida all the time that they have GPAs that I didn't know existed. Like when I was in school, it was a four and that was like the max you could do. And then like I'll meet a student during welcome back week and they'll be like, I have an 8.7. And I'm like, how? And then they begin to try to explain it to me and I'm too dumb to even understand how that's possible. Right, but we live, in a, we live in a city where a, a lot of the people we interact with, most, a lot of you in this room are really, really intelligent. And I think there's this assumption that we tend to make now is like, well, we're so much farther advanced and along as a civilization, right? We don't need God anymore. And yet when Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, one of the arguments he makes is that mankind assumed some 2,000 years ago that that they were far advanced and more advanced than any other civilization and there was no need for God. Look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I want you to focus in on what Paul says there in verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is what? Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. See, as Paul talks about creation here in Romans chapter 1, he's doing what theologians would uh, define as talking about God's common grace to all of mankind. That if if God really created all things, then mankind can look out over creation, see the beauty of it, and understand, hey, something made this and put this into motion. And that in that, mankind enjoys creation, whether they believe and follow God or not. Right? An example of God's common grace would be that here in the state of Florida, during the summer, every afternoon, there tends to be a thunder shower that cools the temperature by about 20 degrees so that we don't erupt in flames being outside in the afternoon, right? Whether you follow God or not, right? That is an example of what theologians would term God's common grace. That whether someone's a follower of God or not, weather exists in such a way that human beings can see God's existence in it and enjoy it. Right? I've got friends that one of their favorite activities is to go uh, mountain and climbing and, and hiking in the mountains. Because when they're there, they say, it's when I'm there that I realize how small I am and how big God is. And they don't need to be a professing follower of Jesus to understand that. See, Paul is also saying, though, that Creation is so marvelous and beautiful that mankind at the end of the day is without excuse in rejecting him because creation gives us all we need to know and see he exists. Which brings us back then to Psalm 8, I think. Because the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to God when we look out on the beauty of the cosmos? How do we respond to a cultural mindset that we find ourselves living in that tends to first discount the possibility of God rather than following the pattern that we see from David, which is run to being in awe of him. Being gripped by his beauty, being gripped by his power, being gripped by his work, and being gripped by his love toward us. And see, Psalm 8 was David's attempt to get Israel to see, Israel, we need to be gripped by an awe of who Yahweh really is. The same God that met Moses 
in a burning bush somewhere in the wilderness outside of Egypt is the same God who delivered us into the promised land and is the same God who we worship today. And so as we reflect on this psalm this morning, here's here's what I hope that God's going to do in us. I'm hoping he's going to maybe rekindle a fire. Maybe he's going to light a flame for the first time. Maybe he's going to turn our gaze and our attention back to where it needs to be. But here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping he's, he's going to have every one of us as we leave this room this morning more in awe of him than we've ever been. And I think David kind of gives us a template on how we can reorient ourselves to restore some of that awe in God that maybe might be lacking in our lives today, right? So, so three things we see David do in this psalm to pull Israel's gaze and attention back to the beauty of their creator. The first one is this. He's gonna call them to reflect on God's power. The second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna remind them, call them to remember the fact that this same powerful God cares about them. And then the third thing he's going to do is he's going to call them to respond to those two things in worship of God, to worship him for who he is and what he's done. So let's look at these first couple verses in Psalm chapter 8. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, the first thing you'll notice there is that David uses the word majestic to describe God. Now, I don't know about you guys. Any of you in here use that term regularly to describe something? Yeah, not, not one hand, right? If anybody wants to hang out with Mitchell Rice after the service, you can find him here in the third row, Right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a term I hear people using regularly, like, oh my gosh, man, like, you know, that playground was so majestic, right? Like, or, I mean, Gator fans, you definitely wouldn't have used this to describe the team this past season. But in past seasons when they've been good, right, I never heard anybody say, hey, man, the Tebow years were just so majestic in Gainesville, right? But that word in the Hebrew means powerful or excellent or famous, And so the reality is, is that the Tebow years were majestic. (laughs) It's been a long time, by the way. I just want to throw that out there to you guys that are still holding on to that 12 years since. But what David is trying to get us to see and understand is like when we are talking about God, Just the very mention of his name should conjure up this idea of power and excellence and fame when we hear his name spoken. And and it's really, really important that David did this in the very first verse 
of this psalm. Because let's, let's, let's do a little history lesson to understand God and his people and understand David and kind of what was going on in the ancient Near East during this time period. So, so in the ancient Near East, you had many, many tribes and nations that were vying for um, supremacy in the region. And so they were warring constantly with one another. There were battles. There were political alliances. If you've ever read the book of Joshua, you would understand kind of what was going on. Or here in a couple of weeks when we start our study in the book of Judges as a church together, we'll definitely see that a lot. But this region was just full of fighting and war. And really even today, that region still faces a lot of instability and fighting and war because of the history of that region and all the different people groups there that had these identities that were in contradiction and at war with one another. And one of the ways that this played itself out was that if your tribe or your people group or your nation one on the battlefield, one of the things you would do is you would declare victory in the name of your God or your gods. And, and so what kind of what happened was is these, these fights between these various tribes and peoples weren't just battles about the culture of those people, but they were actually battles for supremacy between the gods of these various nations and people groups. So the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Assyrians and the, the God of Israel and the gods of the Moabites, right? They would be in direct conflict and war with one another. And basically this region had what we would describe you know, theologically as a, as a polytheistic view of God and who God was. And certain areas would follow certain deities. Now, David is immediately trying to kind of hit a reset button for Israel who has gotten kind of warped and trapped in this polytheistic mindset where they're, where they're basically saying, hey, we just want to exist. We want to live. We don't want to be bothered. We will follow whatever God will give us health, wealth, and prosperity and keep us out of battle and allow us to continue to exist. Whether whether that's the God of the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Moabites. We don't really care. We just, we want power and we want to be able to continue to exist. And what David is saying here is the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the name that he gave himself when he revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness doesn't fall into the polytheistic tug of war between the gods and Mesopotamia. He's above that. He's better than that. See, he says this, you have set your glory above the heavens. And that's not just like some, you know, illustrative language that David's trying to say like, oh, like for as far as you can see, God set himself above that. No, what God's actually saying, what David's actually saying about God is this. Oftentimes the gods of these particular tribes and nations, what was unique about them is that they were the God over some particular aspect of creation. So like if you've ever read the Old Testament and you read about the Baals, right? 
they, Baal was the god of storm and fertility. That was kind of what he was over. And they chose to worship him because they were a primary, primarily warring agrarian nation. And so their god would bring rain and would help them in battle. Right? That's who they needed their god to be. So that was the god they pledged their allegiance to. Right? The, another god that you may see in the Old Testament is the god Ishtar, who was the, the goddess of war and fertility. Right? And they as a people decided, hey, we need to populate and, and have more people than the other tribes. So we're going to worship Ishtar so that our women will bear many children and that when we go to war, she will give us success in battle. And yet David is saying here in these verses, you know, it's actually disrespectful for us to even begin to put Yahweh into the same category as these gods. Because their glory and their power is only over a particular creative function. Yahweh's glory is above the heavens, meaning he is over everything that has been created. That there is nothing outside the purvey of his power and sovereign control. This means that God has created all things and that all things are for him. This would mean that these gods would bow before him even if they existed and God had given them some power and function in the world. They still tremble before Yahweh because he's spoken everything into existence. And see, David's point is, is this to us. And, and, and Paul makes this same point in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, when he's, when he's talking about the work of Christ and what Christ has done. He, he, he tries to like conjure up this idea to get us to remember God's kind of work in, in the redemptive order. But look at what he says in verse 16 when talking about Jesus. He says, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Friends, that is real power. That, that God as Paul's trying to get us to see in Colossians chapter 1, that God would display his love, his power, his justice, and his mercy through the work of Jesus Christ and then tell us that in the creative order, God had established all of this, all of human history, to point to Christ himself. That all things exist to point towards him and therefore display the glory and, dare I say, majesty of our God. And, and David knows that because Israel has been facing this kind of polytheistic 
cultural war now for generations, they're going to have some questions about this, right? They're going to be like, David, you can't just write a song and say God's name is full of majesty and get get me to automatically believe it. So if you look at verse 2, David even gives us a kind of reason why we can know for sure that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is who David says he is. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger, right? You might just kind of write that verse off and and just think like, oh, this is kind of like a a play on words that he's talking about Israel's uh, ability to win. But here's what he's basically saying. David is saying, Israel, by all natural explanations, we should not exist as a people. We are not the largest nation. We are not the most prosperous nation. Our history is one of slavery and exile. The nations around us possess more technology, manpower, military might, and strength. And yet, God chose Abraham and his descendants, a small tribe from Mesopotamia, to reveal himself, his power, and his salvation to the entire world. You know, as someone that loves history and studies it, one of the things when I, when I became a relatively new believer that I found fascinating as I read the Old Testament and then what I knew about history from my college classes and high school classes is I kind of came to this conclusion. I was like, you know, one of the reasons why I'm convinced of the veracity and the truthfulness of this book is these people 100% should not exist, and their record definitely should not exist if we follow the stories that happened to them. You know, when, when tribes and nations would conquer one another in this region, they would completely wipe out their histories. Guys, when I was in seminary, One of the strongest empires in this region for years was the Babylonian Empire. And we have some of their writings and some of of their historical artifacts. It pales in comparison to the historical and archaeological uh, truth and objects we have that verify the validity of the scriptures. It's mind-boggling. I remember reading, you know, pieces of text from the Assyrian holy book or the Babylonian holy books. And you can't even get entire chapters together sometimes because of how little we possess them. These were the military powers in the region. And yet God chose out of the mouths of babies and infants. That's what he's calling Israel. to name a people and reveal his majesty to all of us. And David is calling on Israel. And as we read this here this morning, he's calling on us as God's children. If we want to recapture this awe for God that David has, we have to reflect first on the power that our God has. His very existence is worthy of our reflection because of who he 
is. You know, last week, we finished up our study in the book of James, and one of the things we saw James talking about and finishing on was this idea that God's people are called to prayer. And one of my points in that sermon was we need to be reminded of the power of prayer. And one of my fears last week as we were even talking about that is we would walk away trying to make prayer into another task that we need to do. But if we recapture the awe of who God is as he's revealed himself to us in scripture, then we will run to him in prayer because of the power that he holds and what he can do for us. And so as David encourages us to recapture this awe of God, the first thing that he calls us to do is to reflect on God's power so that it can reset and reorient us to a proper understanding of who God is. Now, the next thing he's going to do, and David is going to not just tell us to reflect on God's power, because oftentimes when we reflect on God's power, we, if we do that properly, we'll, we'll realize, like, whoa, the chasm between myself and God is massive. How could, how could one ever hope to know that God, much less go to him? And yet the next thing that David reminds us is not only should we reflect on God's power, but we should remember that that same God actually cares for us. And look at verse three in Psalm chapter eight. He says to us, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man, that you care for him. Right? Think, think about what David's saying here. Right? He's, he's saying, hey, when I actually pause and I look out over all of creation and I understand the power and grandeur of who our God is, all of this was created by him. All of this reflects the sheer power that he spoke this into existence. He didn't conjure it up out of something. No, he simply spoke and it was. It leads David to one conclusion. How amazing is it that that God cares about me? Cares about you? Cares about us? God cares Do something for me here for a second. I want you to think about someone in power or something you know that has power. What is often a critique of those type of people? Like the first one that came to my mind is that they don't care about those below them. right? Low-hanging fruit, right? Politicians. No matter what side of the political spectrum you might land in, a frequent critique you hear people make about politicians is that they're out of touch 
with the common people and they don't care about us. Right, they live, and, and guys, I'll tell you this, as, as someone that grew, outside, grew up outside of Washington, D.C., that's a fair critique to make sometimes. Right, it's very insulated, it's in that region, and they kind of care about that, and very rarely do they understand what's going on in all the different regions of the country. But a common critique of those in power, even if you study history, was like, hey, these kings, they had serfs, they had all these people, but everyone was just servants and served their power, and the leaders didn't really care about them. They don't serve the people like they're supposed to. They don't love. They don't care for them. And yet David calls us to look at the power in our God, to marvel all the more at his power, and then understand that that same God actually cares about his creation. Your life matters to him. This should be a great encouragement to us. Because what this means is that no matter what you are going through, no matter what suffering you might be experiencing, God cares. Suffering. God says, yeah, I, I, I care and I want you to come to me about it. And I can relate to you, my son, Jesus suffered horribly. We get it. I care. Right? Rejected and lonely. God had a people consistently reject and walk away from him time and time again. And then when his son came to seek and save the lost Jesus' own best friend denied him right in front of him as he was led before the tribunal. God says, I care. Lost, confused maybe. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, which is all of us. Why? because he cares. You know, a theological truth that sometimes is lost is, is this idea that, that God saves us first and foremost for his own glory. And that is true. That is something that, that scripture teaches us. But another thing that scripture teaches us is that God actually does love us. His posture towards his people is one of love and it's exactly why he sent Christ to rescue us. Because God cares. See, the beauty of the God of the Bible is that he is all-powerful, unlike other gods. He's not just the God of storm. He's not just the God of the sea. He's not just the God of money. He's not just the God of pleasure or fertility. He's the God of all things, and he is all-powerful. But in that, the way that other gods would force their people into subjection was that they would have to honor him and keep him appeased because they didn't really care about the people. They just wanted their worship and service. And yet the God of the Bible reveals himself to be entirely different. See, the God of the Bible cares for his creation unlike the other gods. You 
And David, as he writes this song, just celebrating who his God is, calls out to us to recapture this awe of Yahweh because he is powerful and because he cares. And then he tells us, church, there's only one way to respond to that all. Worship. He calls us to respond to who God is by worshiping him. And David gives us two ways that we can do that, right? In those first four verses, right, what he shows us is that we worship God just simply by declaring and praising him for his glory and who he is, right? We talk about God, we sing about God, we pray to God, we praise him for what he's doing, we tell others about him, right? We do what David does, right? With our, with our words, we declare the beauty of God's power, his sovereignty, and the fact that he cares. But then the second thing he calls us to recognize and do is to worship God by living lives for God's glory. Now look at verse five. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Right, here's what's going on in that verse, right? What David is saying here is what we would say theologically is this idea of the Imago Dei, that inside of each and every human being on this planet, we bear the image and likeness of God. And therefore we have intrinsic value and worth because God created us and we were made in his image and likeness. But that also in that, our life matters because God created human beings to be a picture of his glory on earth. It's why things like racism or oppression or whatever else you might want to throw out there are detestable to God because human life has value. All human life. Doesn't matter about what your race is. It doesn't matter about your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what your intellectual capacity is. It doesn't matter whether you have some sort of disability or not. All life matters to the God of the Bible. That is a non-negotiable for his people. And to live in a way that might reject that is to reject the very creative order that God had established. And so David looks out on this and he says, guys, like we respond in worship. Just the fact that we exist means we're going to display God's glory. Whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning or not, let me just let you in on a secret. You might even be an atheist here this morning. You don't know why you're here. Some friend begged you to come to church like my sister did with me when I was in college. And finally, I just came to get her to shut up. It's like, fine. Like whatever it takes to get you to stop talking about God, I'll go to church. Fine. Now I'm a pastor, right? God got the last laugh. But the reality is this, right? You can deny God's existence your entire life, and the hilarious thing is, is you still declare and display the glory of God with every breath you take, and you cannot do anything about it. Your very existence displays his beauty, and in that, right, look at what he says in verse 6. 
You have given him, that's man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Right Here's what David is saying to us. God has given to us dominion over the earth, meaning God expects out of human beings to lead and operate as he would lead and operate and rule over the earth. That means what we do here on this earth matters. The way you live your life matters. This means that all of life is worship. Worship is not just something we do on Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30. It's not just something we do even in the midst of our gathering where we sing some songs. No, the proper understanding of worship is that all of life in light of who God is, is worship to him and should be viewed as such. This means that your job, as monotonous and terrible as it might be, brings glory to God, especially if you're doing it with that in mind. This means that the way you treat others, whether it's in your family or in your apartment or in your neighborhood or at your job, that if you treat them with dignity, honor, and respect, that is an act of worship to your God because you're showing that you care for them because God cares for them. This means that the way you lead and love your family and serve them matter because God loves and serves us. This means that we exercise self-control and discipline and we withhold things for ourselves because we are not the center of the universe. God is, and we are simply here created for one purpose, to make much of the creator. And listen, 15 years ago, if someone had said what I just said to me, I would have laughed at them and I would have said, well, I don't want to do that. And that is certainly within the, the purvey of what you're allowed to do. You can reject God and live your life however you want. I would submit two things to you. God does not call us to a certain way of living because he wants to restrict us, but one, because he knows what's best for us and that our joy will be wrapped up in what brings him honor and glory. Right, one of my favorite sayings is from Pastor Matt Chandler out in Dallas, Texas, and, and he, he just says this regularly and it has stuck with me over the years. No one robs you of more joy than you. Like we, we have what God says, like, do this, and it will go well with you. Do this, and it will be well. Do this, and you will enjoy God, that you will experience all of him, that you will walk with him. And then no one sabotages Kevin Anderson from true joy and enjoyment of God more than Kevin Anderson. I am the absolute worst enemy when it comes to experiencing true joy and experiencing all found in Jesus Christ. And yet God in his mercy says to me, Kevin, my, my mercies are new for you each and every morning. My grace is sufficient for you. Repent 
and believe the gospel. And then he calls me to step out and to live my life. Not just in a couple hours during a quiet time in the morning or a couple hours on Sunday morning when we're gathered together, but he calls me to live a life under the dominion of God, chosen as his special creation to display that dominion, that glory, and that power to the entire world around us. And what we do now, how we live our lives is an act of worship. And one of the beautiful things we discover that if we start to follow God, as we begin to do these things that David mentions here in Psalm 8, we recapture, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And one of the biggest things I've discovered in the last 15 years of walking with Jesus is the more I follow him, the more I obey him, the more I seek him, the less I care about the things I thought were most important in this world, the less I think that my own happiness and comfort are the chief aim of life, and the more I realize that making much of him is the only thing that really matters. And for those of us that are in Christ, we will spend eternity singing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. I love that moment where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem during the Passion Week, and he's on the donkey, and his followers are laying the palm branches down before him and crying out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are standing there, and they're like, Jesus, don't you realize what they're doing? Stop them. And Jesus looks at them and responds, even if I were to stop them, it, I could not stop the very rocks that are laying on the ground next to them from crying out my glory. Because church, there is nothing outside the purvey and power of God. God.